Hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jerry Clark. Oh, welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. It's only Tuesday, and it feels like a lifetime since yesterday. Lot, lots going on in the news lately. A lot is going on. We're still dealing with the uh, fallout from the conclusions of the Robert Mueller investigation and the Trump and Russian collusion. And I, I mean, I will start with that. I was talking about it last night with Troy. And by the way, Eric is here. Hello. Emily's husband, for probably how most of you know him. One day I'm going to get Greg to say my name. One day. We'll work on it. Yeah. We'll work on it. But uh, as I was talking with Troy last night, I I compared the Mueller report to a weapon, a foreign object in a wrestling match. And so today there are what some would consider liberal, left-leaning press outlets saying that Donald Trump is weaponizing the conclusions of the Mueller report. Like, hey... No. That's like saying that guy that, okay, they were beating you with a stick, with a sledgehammer for two years, then they drop it, and you pick it up and start to use it against your enemy who's been beating you. I don't think you're the one, once you defend yourself, is you're not the one who weaponized it. No. So, yeah, he's going to weaponize it. He's going to do what they did, and he's going to beat them hard with it. It's going to be a cudgel. So, I just, I find this... Uh, Hilarious the the dissonance like the partisan hackery that is profound these days and pervasive. But I want to start off with something a little different tonight because Jesse Smollett's charges were dropped. Mm-hmm. Michael Avenatti is in hot water for trying to extort blackmail. Nike, good luck with that. Mm. There, there's a lot in the news in that regard. But I'd rather start off with what I found is just a fascinating story. And I can't remember what these are called, but beliefs that have a, a functional aspect to them. So, one example that was given is when you know how to handle a weapon or a gun, what's one of the rules you learn? I was taught it when I was shooting twenty twos with my dad. You always assume the gun is loaded. Yeah. Obviously, the gun isn't always loaded, but it's a good assumption, a good belief to have, because it keeps you from doing something really bad. It's good practice to always assume it's loaded. Exactly. So it's not literally true, but it's a very useful assumption or belief. Right. And I love finding old examples of beliefs before even the scientific age, that weren't literally true, but were functionally very practical and made a hell of a difference in everyday life. And I came across a really cool story that displays this idea. Now, to tie it into the news, sometimes you can also have assumptions or beliefs that lead you to blind alleys. So if you really believe Donald Trump 
colluded with the Russians, and any day, any day now he's going to be impeached or indicted or something like that, and it ended up being wrong, it's got to be a difficult day. Mm-hmm. Maybe confusing, these sort of things. But sometimes beliefs help you. Science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. In a way, he's right. Like, if you don't know how something works, but you rely on it. Like, if you ask a little kid, like, flip that light switch on, it's essentially magic. Like, obviously, there, there are practical ways that works, and there are electricians all over the country that know how it works. Right. Or even laymen who know how it works. But to a kid, where everything's kind of a want, you know, seen with wonder and awe through a child's eyes... It's magic. I remember a game my grandfather would play with all of us grandkids where we'd pull up after, you know, going to the BX or something on base. We'd pull up to the house, and he's like, okay, say open sesame to the garage door. (laughs) And the garage door would open. And then eventually you get older, you get wiser, you realize he's hitting a button that's hidden right under his console. But he had it hidden pretty well. Like, he pulled off that gambit for a few years. So the magic is easy to be, uh, it's easy to confuse with technology. A lot of the stuff we do these days is downright magical. It's unreal. Yeah. Like the access to information we have these days. The fact that you can pull up, in my case in particular, any piece of music. Sometimes that's the fun part. The music that I cherish the most, Eric, is the stuff I can't find easily online. Like, I found this old Prince bootleg from 1985 where he's at the height of his powers, and it's a sound check before a Purple Rain tour show. Yeah. And he goes into this guitar sound check, just him playing it, electric guitar. And it's up there with Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, like, Satriani. It's unreal because he's not trying to play for a song. He's not trying to play for an audience. He's just playing. Mm-hmm. And it's second to none but you can't really find that thing and where I found it you can only stream it twice in two weeks because of copyright issues wow so there's stuff like that where say it's Eddie Van Halen comes on the scene or Prince is doing something with the guitar any amazing uh, virtuoso like a great piano player of old or uh, what is it Paganini did the violin these sort of things where people are doing new techniques that you don't know what they're doing. Like, how are you making that sound? And I, I think people uh, often would say that person's possessed. Like, there's a magical explanation for things because there's no way that person can logically and practically pull that off. Yeah. There's got to be something magical to it. So, but if you look at ancient history, this idea that advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, could it be that a certain belief, like I started out with, could lead to a, a practical improvement. So let's go to like ancient Scandinavia, the Vikings, right before the advent of the Viking Age. Smiths discovered, blacksmiths discovered a ritual that enabled them to impart the steely strength of their ancestors and animals they beloved into their weapons. It was a crucial transformation for the Scandinavians. The majority of the iron they had access to was bog iron. 
bacteria and bogs oxidizes trace amounts of iron to gain energy, and in so doing, concentrate the iron, enabling its collection for smithing. But it's very impure and soft, which is a big problem for the Scandinavians. They had conflicts all around them, whether it was the Romans or neighboring warlords or new Christian settlements in the area. So their survival really depended on having the best technology when you're going to war. So these smiths discovered that the bones of their dead could grant them an edge, literally and figuratively. By incorporating the remains of the dead, their spirits could be transferred into the blade, making it stronger and more durable. Here's the thing. By doing that, incorporating the bones into the smithing process, the swords did, in fact, get stronger. What they didn't realize, these ancient smiths, is mixing their bog iron with the carbon in the bones would make them rudimentary steel. So it's so cool to me. This idea of, and they got into these old ideas like the, the forge is like the womb of a mother and mm-hmm. the smith is like the father impregnating it and doing the spirits into it. And that was the motivation and the explanation. But in just scientific speak, there's creating basic steel. Right. I love stuff like that. That stuff's really cool. Like, I mean, it as with anything that that goes on, like somebody has to try something first. Right. And and sometimes you you come up with something incredible like carbon steel or you know, I other things I can't think of right now. Well, I I just was reminded of uh not to pull it up. I think I put it on my Book of Faces page. Uh, When you look at the world, and it just seems, whatever it is your hope, you know, you might hope to change the world in a particular way, and it might seem insurmountable. For instance, most of human history, you have slaves Mm -hmm. of all different types. There's all sorts of types of slavery. Some was more like, you owe a debt, you can't pay it, you're going to be my slave for a while. But some of it was like, you're a certain class of person. You were born to that person. You're always going to be a lower class person. Like caste systems around the world or serfs under feudal lords. So slavery, though, has been the rule throughout most of human history. So imagine this has been the rule for thousands of years. And you find yourself saying, this is wrong. This is an abomination. I want to change it. Well, that's what a gentleman named William Wilberforce did, along with his friend Thomas Clarkson. Because it's easy to think, "Mm, it's too tough. The world's always been this way. We're not going to change it. But there are occasionally great individuals who overcome insurmountable obstacles and eventually prevail. This is 1759 when Wilberforce is born in England. And he really, like, physically was a, he was a runt of the litter. He's a dainty little man. Uh, his contemporary James Boswell called him a shrimp. Thin and short, Wilberforce compensated with a powerful vision and appealing eloquence. He was a great orator and writer. He was elected to Parliament in 1780 at the age of 21. That's another thing. It's like, look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's so young. She's 29. Most of our founders are these young men. There's a few exceptions like Ben Franklin, but most people in most of human history, again, have been like in their early 20s, if not yeah. 30. 
it's amazing how much we've pushed back growing up. Yeah. But essentially what happened with Wilberforce, he spoke out against the war with the United States, America at the time. He called it cruel, bloody, and impractical. But he, he didn't really have a North Star after that. He would go from issue to issue trying to figure out what to, uh, what to speak about, what to really advance as a member of parliament. And his central focus came into light after he converted to Christianity. And it sparked what would be his lifelong calling. He was revolted by the hideous barbarity of the slave trade then prevalent in the world. And he determined in October 1787 to work for its abolition. And this is the, what's called the classical liberal period. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it goes back to our basic point. When you have a belief and it just, how do you get there? Well, I don't really know. I don't know how we get there. But it's not going to be necessarily through a central plan. I'm not talking like like the Green New Deals, too. It's over the top in its vision, but it's also like incredibly controlling yeah. and way too petty and like what they've prescribed. And luckily, it was voted down heavily in the Senate today. I think it would be a disaster. Uh, even if you wanted to, if you're worried about the use of fossil fuels and you want to use renewable energy more than fossil fuels, let's say, because you're worried about climate change, I'll grant that. The Green New Deal is not the way to go, in my humble opinion. But for 75 years before Wilberforce set about to end the trade in slaves, and ultimately slavery itself, Britain enjoyed the sole right by treaty to supply Spanish colonies with captured Africans. The trade was lucrative for British slavers, but savagely merciless for its millions of victims. Wilberforce labored relentlessly for his cause, forming and assisting organizations to spread the word about the inhumanity of one's man owning another. Our motto must continue to be perseverance, he wrote his followers. And he rose in the House of Commons two years after he first got this vision in 1789. And he didn't know it would take another 18 years after 1789 for British law to change in the slave trade. But can you imagine these sorts of words, Eric, in, like, Congress today? I can't. No. But here's what he's, he said on the floor of the Parliament. He said, when we think of eternity and of the future consequences of all human conduct, what is there in this life that should make any man contradict the dictates of his conscience, the principles of justice, the laws of religion and of God? Sir, the nature and all the circumstances of this trade are now laid open to us. We can no longer plead ignorance. We cannot evade it. It is now an object placed before us. We cannot pass it. We may spurn it. We may kick it out of our way, but we cannot turn aside so as to avoid seeing it. For it is brought now so directly before our eyes that this house must decide and must justify to all the world and to their own consciences the rectitude of the grounds and principles of their decision. So essentially it's a call to conscience. Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing if you're ignorant of how brutal the slave trade is. It's another thing you've seen it and yet you do nothing or you've seen it and you're the one per, you know, continuing it. Right. You're profiting off of it. And he was mocked relentlessly by all sorts of powerful forces. But again, it's back to our initial point. Like these Viking blacksmiths thought they were imbuing the spirit of animals and their ancestors and the swords. wasn't literally what they were doing, but that vision led them to greater heights. When you look 
at what Wilberforce and, say, his friend Thomas Clarkson were doing, people at that time could have said, there's always been slavery. You're not going to change it. What are you doing? But they had this belief, in my opinion, that can't be proven in the basic conscience of man, the basic dignity of every individual made in God's image. You can't prove that. Because, again, if you look at history, it's, what, the rise of this ruler and that tribe, and then they fall, and this empire rises up out of the ashes, then it falls again. It seems almost, uh, like, futile and pointless at a certain point. But, really, if you can stand against this tide of history, like, no, we're going to change this because we have this belief in the basic dignity of all human beings, and we're going to continue to make the arguments, continue to make the arguments, continue to organize and push and push and push, it happens within their lifetime. They get rid of it completely. And they did it without how we did it here in the United States with a massive war. Yep. That sort of stuff, uh, it's easy, though, to look back in the past and find these were the great moments. I've more been thinking, okay, what are the great tasks before us now? And in some ways, I think that's what the Democrats are always up to. They're always looking for the new cause, so to speak. And sometimes they hit the mark. Sometimes it might be important, but not as important as, say, as ending slavery. And so I I find sometimes the, you can go wrong with your belief, but we have to push beyond, I think, the daily petty partisanship and try to find a loftier aim. And this is one thing I've been constantly hitting on. If all we're doing here, politically speaking, is who can best placate and talk to the middle class who can best be the champion of the middle class i don't think that's the best the best goal we could get i agree like what what should we do if i'm running for the presidency i mean i like the old even though i'm not a big government guy the idea of jfk saying we're going to put a man on the moon that captures the imagination yeah It, it certainly captures mine maybe not everybody's I don't. I don't know. I just, it's something I just thought of. I don't understand Democrats and Republicans mm. and how divided they are. It. It's because mm. in what like the forties, fifties, sixties, you you whenever you went to vote on something, you voted what was right, not what was Democratic or Republican, and even back then. Democrats and Republican would would choose the right thing, not the party thing. Hmm. Why why are we so trying to divide it? Because it's we always spout togetherness, but on the on the flip side of the coin, it's separation. I don't know if that's number one. The the past. You said the 40s, 50s, 60s. Well, I don't know specifically. I, I know it used to be like that. I think I, I would disagree slightly in the sense that I think there were good people trying to do the right thing. But I think it was just as uncharitable and dishonest and messy as it is today. We just have the luxury of reading the narrative in a history book or watching yeah. a documentary. And I, I don't know. Honestly... A lot of that stuff ends up being like uh, 
palace history, the court historian, the guy who's writing the history that the king wants him to write. Yeah. And I think that's happened a lot, especially with like FDR and whatnot. And you can get some different perspectives. Uh, but the question you ask, why are we so divided? Why is the partisanship seem so petty? And, well, it doesn't have a lofty aim. And it doesn't seem like the the beliefs we're supposed to hold in common as Americans actually drive us to good things anymore. Mm-hmm. I think partly that's because we've abandoned some of those beliefs. I don't know of a party that... We do it better than, say, some other countries, but a lot of what we talk about in politics is so far removed from this basic idea of the language of liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's so removed from that. There might be lip service at an inaugural speech or at the State of the Union, but the everyday back and forth and fight is usually so removed from that, if not in complete contradiction of that ideal and that hope and that longing of equal dignity and respect in the law for all people. And maybe if we get back to that and we have good faith arguments about that, it could work. But here's the thing. We're going to have to this break. But this question you asked, why we're so divided, why does it seem like hypocrisy is a virtue in American politics mm. these days? It's a question I've been racking my brain about a lot. And I've written about it a lot. So I'm going to find something that I wrote during the break. We're going to pull it up. Uh, partly to give a simple answer, though. It's not about telling the truth or doing the right thing. That's not what the political game's about. I wish that's what it was about, but that's not what it's about. Yeah. It is not a logical discussion for doing the right thing as a people. Politics is about is expressing certain symbols that rally enough people to your cause to win power. Something like that. So Trump did it with the wall. Like, we got to build the wall. It, is it literally going to be a 20, 30-foot wall? It's a concrete from sea to shining sea? Well, no. But it's, it's the symbol, the idea of mm-hmm. we're protecting the people of the United States. So that's one symbol. I mean, when you look at certain uh, foreign enemies we've had, like this happens every time in war. Your enemy is literally demonized. Now, sometimes there's such an enemy that you don't have to go that far, like the Nazis. They're pretty wacky just looking at what they say of themselves, yep. like old pagan blood myths and superior race and all sorts of crazy crap. But I, I think there's a tendency to exaggerate and demonize and go over the top a little bit in that regard. But it's generally, how can I imbue meaning to a certain symbol that will rally the people, that'll get me the power? So it's really a fight over power. So if, imagine you're... Have you ever been in a conversation where you realize you're not trying to understand the other person? You're trying to win? See, I don't think like that. Well, that's that's to your credit, though. So, I I can understand. You know that. where I'm coming I from. I know where right? you're coming from. Right. But, I'm, yeah, it's... I'm, I, I am not like that. So. Well, that's to your... Like I said before, that's to your credit. But I, I see it all the time. Uh, yeah. Some people might just call it a pissing match or a measuring contest. So it's, guys do it a lot. It's like one-upsmanship. Women do it in a passive-aggressive way. Generally, not... Obviously, I'm speaking in generalities, but uh, women will, like, compliment each other to death, but in, like, they don't really like that necklace. They actually yeah. think it looks terrible on you. Oh, have you been working out? You look so good these days. Yeah. Thanks for that, Susie. Um, 
No, I'll, I'll pull something up here, and we'll get into it, because uh, it's something that's troubled me. Because I came into politics with this sort of idealism, like, we're going to abolish slavery. We're going to put our best, brightest minds in the same room, and they're even if they vehemently disagree, they're going to hash things out in an honest, good-faith manner. And I've been bitterly disappointed <laughs> since having that thought about politics. But I'll find some of this uh, writing. We'll get into why is politics so corrupting and dividing us. And I think it has gotten worse. Part of that might be technology. But I don't think, let's not kid ourselves, I don't think there was ever really a golden age. There might have been some in the sense that one point of view won. So yeah. they took over power and they were able to do whatever they wanted. But I... I I think it's always been messy and difficult and corrupt to a degree. I don't know if there's actually ever been a golden age. It just might have been a simpler age, not necessarily a better age. Maybe that's what I was going for, was mm. simpler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to some degree, our language is lacking. We don't speak the kings in the same way as we once used to. Like the arguments of, say, the founders and the Federalist Papers were not exactly the arguments you see in say, today's newspapers yeah. and publications. But if you look hard enough, you'll find stuff. So coming back, we'll try to answer that question. And before we hit the break, I'm going to tell folks, I was telling you off air about um, me working out. I'm a little sore today. Well, I'm sore pretty much every Tuesday and Wednesday and as well as Saturday and Sunday because I work out Monday mornings pretty hard and Friday mornings pretty hard. I'm still doing my DDP yoga, DDPY, but I realized I got to start picking up and putting down weights. And where I want to do that is Express Fitness 24-7. Number one, it's in the name, 24-7. Once you become a member, and you don't have to sign some year-long contract, if you're a little nervous and you just want to try at the gym, it's month to month, which is a great deal. And once you become a member, you get a key fob. So you can go whenever you like. And every time I've gone, I've never had to wait on equipment. There's always there's plenty of stuff to do. You never have to relax. I like to hop on the row machine, do a thousand meter row, then kind of set up a circuit. Okay, these are the lifts I'm going to do today and just knock it out. It's a great time there. They've got music in the background. You put in earbuds and it's made me, I think, a little mentally sharper. I think I look a little better in the mirror and it's something I'm glad I started. And Alex, uh, one of the co-owners over there, is working with me. I'm absolutely loving it. I'm going to the Zelda Road location at the Hillwood Festival Shopping Center. One part of the facility is above Firehouse Subs, and right across the parking lot is the other part of the facility where you can do more of your big lifts, your compound lifts, and whatnot. But folks, if you're interested, check them out. And the best way to find out a lot of information, because there are multiple locations all over the River Region, Prattville, Millbrook, Wetumpka, Clanton, Montgomery here where I'm going, as well as Pine Level, go to ExpressFitness24, the number 24.com. You can find out a lot more about what location would be best for you. But if you feel like coming and working out with me, I'm there Monday mornings and Friday mornings. Join me. Come on. And when you go to sign up, tell Alex Joey sent you. Do me that favor because you will not be disappointed. It will fit your schedule. I think you'll feel better. And if you are feeling like, ah, I wouldn't even know where to begin, like getting back into a gym, where would I? They give you free initial personal training. To set you on the right path. What are your goals? Okay, you can meet them this way. So they'll get you started so you don't feel like a fish out of water. So, again, check them out. Express Fitness 24-7. That's at expressfitness24.com. Find which location is right for you and uh, join me over there. It's fun. You can watch me doing you know, some like 
some deep like sumo deadlifts or something. <laughs> I'm, it's fascinating, I'm sure, to watch, folks. No, no, it's not. Coming back, we're going to answer this question that I think has been racking a lot of people's brains, especially folks that aren't in the thick of politics. Why are things so crappy these days? Why is it not everyday life, but it's just it's so toxic? Like you turn on cable news. Like, oh, what are they arguing about now? Yep. We'll try to answer that question right after the break. this question of why is politics so divisive these days and it really does remind me of like well certain fights I've been in where it's like it's stopped being about understanding the person or even forget about like what you're arguing about it's like just yelling at each other like what's the best way to like hurt that person that's when you know it's really getting toxic and unproductive and destructive You don't want to be in that sort of situation, but yet that's the feeling I get when I listen to most political discussions. Like, I've seen it with my own family members. Like, my dad mostly watches Fox News. His father, my granddaddy, he mostly watches MSNBC or CNN. So when those two sit down to talk politics, I'm like, (laughs) what are you... The way I describe it is they're arguing with ghosts or, like, ghouls or spirits or gins or something. Like, you're not talking to one another... You're talking to that caricature in the sky or in the ether that CNN or Fox News has taught you about. Yeah. Like, I'll bring up, say, climate change with my father. And I, you know me, I don't want a government program to solve anything. It's just more like, well, look at these ice core samples. Is it a potential problem if you put more carbon in the atmosphere that you could have a feedback loop? That would lead to more warming, and what would be the effects of warming? And we could have an interesting discussion about that. What technologies could be invented and made, you know, into a market that would make people's lives better, maybe prevent this? If it is a problem in the first place, he'll start yelling about Al Gore. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't bring up Al Gore. Like, I didn't. And so I, I find it interesting too when I watch my grandfather and my dad argue. I'm like, y'all are getting really mad. Are either of y'all congressmen, perchance? State legislature? <laughs> legislators? You Are you the president or the senator? Or, like, no. You're, you're Ray and you're Gary from Montgomery, Alabama, and you're private citizens, and your family, your father and son. Relax. Good Lord. So it affects even, like, the everyday person. I get it. Like, people just get way too heated. It's almost like a form of possession in my mind. And I've been there. That's why I think I can talk about this. I've been that type of guy before. Where it's like there's a great meme that goes around. It's like, please, honey, don't talk politics to my, tonight. And it says, me, two drinks later. And it's like that scene from The Patriot with him running with the, the yeah. flag <laughs> into the battle. So, like, I've been that guy. But here's a, one of the best quotes on politics ever. And again, I'm citing H.L. Mencken. 
excuse me if you're getting bored with it, I'm not yet, because I love this. Listen to this quote. As democracy is perfected, the office represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move towards a lofty ideal. Oh, maybe we're going to the lofty goal, like I said. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a lot of people were using this quote in 2016 or after 2016. They used it when Bush was in office. I heard Republicans use it when Obama was in office. And... uh, I mean, I was listening to a podcast with Ron White where the people would come up to him and go, that Obama's an idiot. And Ron White just being a contrarian comedian is like, you sure about that? Like, you might disagree with him, but the guy finished, you know, first at Harvard <laughs> Law. You sure he's an idiot? Like, I don't think W was an idiot. I don't think Obama was. I, Trump is not an idiot. These, if you become president of the United States, you might not be some Rhodes Scholar like Clinton, but you're probably pretty savvy in some way. A lot of different forms of intelligence. But people use this moron quote to, you know, punch at those powerful people they don't like. And mm-hmm. I get it. But it's, it's a good example of, of the polarizing, divisive language. You know, the president's a moron. That orange ape looks like an orangutan. That <laughs> weird beaver pelt hair. Like, you know, you can come up with all sorts of jabs and insults. And anybody that, that, that likes Trump is a moron and a racist. Like, it's, it's just weird how we devolve into these ideas. So, But I really took Mencken seriously. I asked myself the question, why is, as democracy is perfected, does the inner soul of the people reflect morondom? Interesting idea. Well, he provides an answer in his 1920 essay. You can find it online. This is where the moron quote comes from. It's called Bayard and Lionheart. It's a 1920 essay. And it's the way he talks about the then presidential candidates, Warren Harding and James Cox. He might as well have been describing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016 or whoever Trump's going to face this next time because I feel like it's going to be just as divisive and stupid this time around. Here's what he wrote about Harding and Cox. Neither candidate reveals the slightest dignity of conviction. Neither cares a hoot for any discernible principle. Neither, in any intelligible sense, is a man of honor. However, Minken then takes a turn. He shifts his focus away from the gladiators in the arena and onto the bloodthirsty spectators looking down at the fighters. He reminds us that democracy is not about the propagation of diverse and sound ideas but winning votes at all costs. And how does one win votes? Of the two candidates, that one who wins, who least arouses the suspicions and distrust of the great masses of simple men. Well, what are more likely to arouse those suspicions and distrust than ideas, convictions, and principles? The plain people are not hostile to shysterism, save it be gross and unsuccessful, but they shy instantly and inevitably away from the man who comes before them with notions that they cannot immediately translate in terms of their everyday delusions. They fear the novel idea, and particularly the revolutionary ideas, they fear the devil. So, and he goes on, he goes on, and he goes on. Minkin could write a lot. His basic idea is democracy is the theory that we can, the collective ignorance will give us wisdom, <laughs> like essentially. 
like popularity will lead us to good things. He says, such tests arise inevitably out of democracy. The domination of unreflective and timorous men moved in vast herds by mob emotions. In private life, and this is a crucial distinction. People are like, Joey, you're just through mink and calling everybody idiots. Like, in terms of politics, yes. For instance, I think my father's a brilliant man in his job. He's a civil engineer, and he's shown me these multi-billion dollar projects he's been helping to schedule or reschedule after the fact. Like, some contractor and subcontractor screwed it up, and he's hired to come in and fix the schedule. You're talking about these complicated flow charts with all sorts of different controls. When you're trying to put together, say, a max security prison or a hospital, it's very complicated. And it makes go, oh, that's, that's amazing that you can do that. I can't do that. It's amazing. But when he starts talking about to politics, I'm like, Dad, you kind of sound, you sound a little basic, Dad. It's like me saying, Taylor Swift, stay out of politics. You're brilliant with the pop songs. Mm-hmm. And you can have your opinion. I'm just warning you, when you start talking about politics, you're going to sound like every other idiot with an opinion, myself included. So stay special. Keep being the pop princess of our new age. Don't descend into the depths and the murkiness of politics. But I simplified Mencken's kind of essay. Like, why is it that as democracy is perfected, and I think we're perfecting it more and more, Russian interference or no Russian interference, why is it that as it's perfected and reflects the inner soul of the people, the White House will be adorned by a downright moron? So I made it plain and simple. Here's the formula. Number one, democracy offers power to the masses. Really, it offers power to the representatives of the masses, technically. But we're taught that our vote gives us a big voice and control. I think time and time again, it's shown that that's not the case. Like, we vote for people and they do things we don't like, and we just have to, you know, go kick rocks. But number one, democracy offers power to the masses. With power on offer, the masses come to care more about winning that power and the free and clear expression of ideas. Number three... With winning as the goal, all novel ideas take a backseat to conformity, virtue signaling, and emotional appeals. Number four, with the rules of the mob now set as such, only the most empty-headed or hucksterous politicians rise to the top. And five, and finally, as this process is perfected and the democratic populace expanded, fewer and fewer ideas will matter until we have reached the land of Morandum with the president as our idiot idol. Now, of course, folks, we're exaggerating. We really are exaggerating. But the simple idea is when the game becomes more about winning power rather than being good to your neighbor, not bearing false witness, Mm -hmm. you people will do ungodly, and I'm using that word on purpose, ungodly things to gain that power. And they will even lie to themselves where they believe their own lie. They become delusional in a sense. Like, if it essentially upsets what you believe, you react emotionally. It's like, what the hell is that? And everybody does it. I mean, I want to be clear. In the shallows of politics, imbeciles are always and everywhere. Nitwits are pervasive no matter the school of thought. They have been with us time immemorial. Get used to it, folks. Scream it at the top of your lungs. I'm surrounded by nincompoops. These people are our neighbors, our family members, and even our friends. 
And you never know, an ignoramus may, may stare back at you in the mirror this very morning. In fact, as I stared into my mirror this morning, I could hardly stop myself from saying, I have met the boob and he is me. Because I honestly can't always be uh, intelligent. I can't always know exactly what I'm doing. But where I've tried to check myself is imagine you're not actually in control, Joey. Because I'm not. Mm-hmm. Even if I have one vote, I'm not really in control. Number one. Imagine because I'm not in control, I care who wins, but that shouldn't be my number one goal. It should be something different, like tell the truth. Or imagine, like, there's an incredibly terrible problem, like William Wilberforce saw. Slavery is an abomination. Let's get rid of it. Have something clear that you want to accomplish other than, well, I just want to be the guy in charge. And I think that's the problem. Because there's so many people saying, I want to be the guy in charge, or really what's happening, most people are saying, I want the guy who I like to be in charge. Mm -hmm. If that's the number one motivation... No wonder it gets so divisive. Uh, it's, uh, it's the idea of you can only have so much of one thing. It's, this is a weird example. But it's actually what we hold in common, our desire for power, that m- makes us so divided. So say you're best friends with somebody. Like you and I are best friends. We grew up doing all the things best friends do. Like through elementary school, middle school, high school. We've gone skateboarding, we've gone hunting together, we've done projects on cars together. Like, we even were on the same football team and all the knockout dragouts. Like, might even, like, comforted one another in, like, a tragic time in our lives. So think of us as best of friends. And then we both meet the same girl. And at the beginning, it's like, oh, yeah, she's cool, she's cute, I like her. But we realize, even though we're best friends, we both like her. And one of us will not budge. Both of us are saying, we're not going to budge. I get her. She's mine. There's probably going to be a fight. Yeah. Hopefully not a physical fight. But again, it's that common desire. Like, I want that thing. And it's one thing if it's a fight over love. Like, I want the same guy, or we want the same girl, whatever. And luckily in that situation, you know, the girl has some say in the matter. Yeah. And the guy with girls competing over him has a say in the matter. But when it's something that's not even as simple as, like, a, we both want the same car, we're going to fight over it. Or we both want the same resources. When it's something as elusive, as shadowy as power. Because power exists where people think it exists. So it's a little tricky to figure out where exactly power is. But that's our number one goal. Again, I I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating. When that is the clear objective, throw everything else out the window. Truth becomes secondary. It's a lot of what happened, I think, with this Russia-Trump collusion story. This narrative that's finally, I think, been debunked by Robert Mueller. Is people wanted to believe it. Because they saw it as their ticket to ride to win back power to their side. So I think that's a long-winded answer to your question. Why are we so divided? Because there's a lot of power at stake. And then it gets even more complicated when it's not just like two sides that believe the same thing. They just want the power. It's like, okay, 
both sides want the power, but then they believe radically different things in some ways, too. So that just adds and complicates it even more. And then you add into that anybody you see as an enemy, you tend to exaggerate how bad they are, how stupid they are, how evil they are. It just, it's, it's a long way down. So you think you're on the final rung of hell and no, you're, you're going to sink even further. How do we solve the problem of this? Well, my basic answer, which might be a little too serving to my ideals, is shrink the power. Shrink it. Disperse it. Like, uh, I heard one economist say, he was arguing with a bunch of technocrats that ran the European Union. He's like, I wish Europe was a thousand Liechtensteins. Liechtenstein's a tiny little country in Europe. But it's one of the richest in the world. So imagine not 50 states, but a hundred states, you know, 500 states. And each with a local as possible government. And it's what uh, the famous writer Alexis de Tocqueville talked about. Democracy, if it's going to work. This experiment in liberalism. Dignity, equality, liberty for every person, each individual person. He's, he said that in order for this to work and continue to work, it needs to be three things. It needs to be as local as possible. So the people that are, you're electing and giving power, they're essentially your neighbor. Montgomery, we kind of have that. It's, a, it's a, not the biggest city on earth, but you know it's possible you never actually met the mayor of Montgomery. You don't actually know Todd Strange. But luckily, you can probably go meet him, and it's not that difficult to meet him. He doesn't have some big celebrity status. Like I think most people love him or hate him, would be incredibly intimidated to meet Donald Trump. It would be, it, I would tell you right now, even though I don't have this outsized, like, respect for the presidency itself, it would be surreal to meet a president of the United States. Just because of how removed they are from your everyday life and what they're doing. And how much power they have. So Tocqueville says local. Because it means really you're dealing and making decisions with your neighbors. Voluntary was his second standard. So the government might put an official stamp on this is what we're going to do. But it better be something people would do anyway without the government putting that stamp on it. Which makes a lot of sense. So there's less friction and the official government stamp is more a a backstop. Like It's like putting a veneer on top of a a nice desk that you've just made. It's like, okay, that's how it's going to look. And we're going to stick with that. And if it's a good idea that people would have come to on their own anyway, yeah, let's make that official. I think that works. But then the last one, the last standard, he said, for democracy to work is infused with the spirit of religion. Or put another way, because he's very vague on what he meant by religion, but uh, a spirit of hope, a spirit of we can do. Like if we have faith in each other and in something greater above us and, and things we don't know, then it will give us that little extra push when things become really tough. And right now, if I look at what our democratic republic has become and what our democracy has become in terms of the democratic process, it's not local. We'll have a mayoral you know, race here in Montgomery, and it's starting to ramp up. I mean, we have city council, and all, but that's not, I think, the politics that captures most people's imagination. Most of the democracy you hear about is national, so it's not local. It's certainly not voluntary. A lot of the rules, these new majorities in Congress or the new president wants to do, 
That's why people are fighting. Because you realize if that, you know, if Elizabeth Warren wins the presidency, Joey's not going to be happy. And a lot of people on the right side of the aisle are just not going to be happy. And vice versa. A lot of people on the left are just not going to be happy. So it's not voluntary. They are forcing you to do things. And if you ask, let me ask you, do you think our politics these days is uh, infused with the spirit of religion and godliness and hope? Oh, no. Right. No. So we're in a bad place. Yeah. (laughs) Politically speaking. But what does give me hope is all these folks I was calling idiots, like the mob is a big you know, collection of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Those individual people that make up that mob are incredibly brilliant in many ingenious ways. It might not be like book smart. It might be you're really good at tinkering or inventing, or you might be really resourceful and how do I make money? Or you might be very em- empathetic in the sense that you know that somebody's going through a tough time and you can be that shoulder they can cry on or you can be that ear when they need somebody to listen to you or listen to them. So I, I think people on an individual basis, the option is always there. That if you turn away from thinking we must constantly fight for this immense power that's involuntary in Washington, D.C., instead just focus on our neighbors. Uh, it's something a local priest here said. If you really want to change the world, invite your neighbors over to dinner. Get to know them. And then if you find something out about them, let's say they need help with something, help them. That's how you really change the world. And I think that option, because it's always there, is the real hope for our future. It's not necessarily uh, voting every two, four, or six years. I agree. Well, well, I'm glad you agree. I'm I'm sorry I'm not smart enough to, oh, <laughs> to no, argue no, with dude. you. No, I, I don't have the, the same knowledge you do. And yeah. I, I've said that before on politics, anyway. Well, but I can't work with wood the way you can. I know crap about cars, and well, no, we each have our specialties, I suppose. That's that's how I I get that the mass of morons can, right. can have wisdom. Right, exactly. And it's uh, it's time we look at each other as just you know people yep. with flaws, pockmarks, and all. <laughs>